G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Hello, it's Neil Johnson. Welcome to today's 2020 podcast from the Vision Radio Network. You can hear 2020 weekdays from 10am Australian Eastern Standard Time. He's affectionately known as Skippy, written up as the rarest of beasts, a popular police commissioner, a Baptist, a teetotaler and a surfer. He heads up Australia's biggest police force, the fourth largest in the Western world. Andrew Scipioni is, in the words of the former New South Wales Premier Morris Yemmer, a top cop, a good cop and a straight shooter. And over the past couple of days, he's been reflecting deeply on the price of being a police officer. He's joined Lee Hatcher in conversation this week, marking a significant and sad anniversary for the New South Wales Police. It's been quite an emotional couple of days for you and the members of your police force remembering Detective Inspector Bryson Anderson, who was stabbed to death on a call-out exactly a year ago. Exactly a year ago. It's sad to reflect. I know that particularly the family will feel at this time uh, the loss of one of their their loved ones and doesn't matter whether you're... Uh, a son, a daughter, a, a wife, a father, a mother. The fact is Bryson's gone. He's been gone a year and uh, we're still being inspired by him in the, in the way he led his professional life. And uh, yes, a year on, it's important we never forget. He worked for you he about did. a decade ago. He did. He did. He worked for me in professional standards or the old internal affairs command. I was the uh, assistant commissioner there and Bryson was one of the staff. He was as much a larrikin then as he uh, he was when he, he left us, and uh, I've got to say, even then, his potential was clearly on display. He was a very, very capable professional man. Your two sons are police officers. They are. Do you ever yeah. get anxious about them? Yeah, look, I do. I do, and I know their mum does as well. Having said that, they've made a choice. They've made a life commitment, and it's interesting that you actually raised that as I was thinking through this particular time with the loss of Bryson. I was uh, reflecting that police right across this state, including my two boys, will renew our commitment, all of us, to doing what Bryson Anderson did in life, and that was to protect his community and uh, only so that we can all lay our heads down at night on the pillow and be safe and comfortable. And my boys are out there and they're doing it just like Bryson did. It's dangerous, but it's rewarding. So uh, thank Goodness, we've got men and women that are prepared to do this and do this every day of every week. Indeed. I'd like to look back over your own career and life. Can we begin at the age of 14, which was a huge year for one so young, mm. with two defining events? So the first one, that was the year you embraced Christian faith. Yeah, that's right. How did that's that happen? Right. Interesting story. I, uh, I can recall as a young fellow growing up in Western Sydney and... Uh, I really was only interested in sport and uh, they were the sort of things that just being a boy, I hadn't stepped into a church, I hadn't been a church person, didn't come from a church family. But what I can say is at 14, um, I did make the decision, but it was based on watching some neighbours that moved in but a few years before who uh, were leaders in a local Baptist youth group. And uh, they invited me, encouraged me to go along and uh, 
And I did. And at the age of 14, I made the decision that, uh, you're right, was defining in my life. Why did you do that, do you think? Well, interesting. As a 14-year-old boy, going through all of the things that 14-year-old boys do, I realized that these people that I was meeting on a a weekly basis by that stage uh, through a Bible study group um, had something that I didn't have. They were going through all the same issues, but they just seemed to have it more together than me. They had answers. They had belief. They had certainty. And I didn't. And I didn't think that was something that I would want to go without. That certainty was so important to me. And so I made the decision. I can recall the place. I can recall the time. It was in the house next door to where I lived, in the front room, that that I made that decision. And I couldn't think of a good reason not to, and I was oh so right. And that fledgling faith... And you were severely tested just six months later. Yeah, sure. Um, I uh, In that same year, I lost my father. Dad passed away in the home uh, very early one morning. And at that stage, I went from being a boy to a man. I had to. Um, remembering that I came to Australia as part of what was known as the 10-pound POM yes. scheme. So there was only mum, dad, my sister and myself. My sister, Frances, had uh, married and moved away by that stage and was living interstate. And so there was... Only mum, dad and I, and with dad gone, that was it. So uh, I had to assume that responsibility, uh, as well as uh, grow in my own skin to become the man that I was meant to be. So, yeah, the loss of a father for a 14-year-old boy is devastating. You ended up leaving school to become an apprentice electrician to support the family. Had to, that's right. Mum still had a mortgage because uh, dad, when they came, built a house and, of course, was still paying that off. So uh, my bit was to go and earn some money and... Sort of earn my keep, and I did that. Took on an apprenticeship role as an electrician. I was so young that at the time I took on the apprenticeship, I wasn't even old enough to use the power tools. Wow. <laughs> what drew you to the police force? You know, I guess within me the whole time was this notion of service. I couldn't think of a better organisation to do it. I didn't start my law enforcement career with the police. I started it with the Australian Customs Service, uh, working at the airport and working on the waterfront in Sydney. And uh, I enjoyed the challenges that come from law enforcement. I saw it as a way to serve. I saw it as a way to contribute, give back, all of those things. I thought that it was where I was meant to be, and and of course that was the case. Through a long and distinguished career, you've lived through a major change in police culture, Mm. pre and post the mid-90s New South Wales Police World Commission. Can you describe to us what that culture was like in practical everyday terms Mm. before that change? That's a very interesting question. The culture that we're talking about here Whilst it was an organisational culture, it didn't affect everybody. Let me tell you, the vast majority of men and women that I worked with in the period leading up to that Royal Commission were good, honest, hard-working, committed people. We were just trapped. We were trapped in a culture where it wasn't okay to speak out. You didn't talk about the things that were happening that you should have talked about. You didn't make a stand. And I can recall as a young cop, often leaving work, in fact, meeting Joy. Joy we, had, we had a son at the time, Ben was born, uh, and I can recall being picked up after work and saying, I don't know if this job's for me. I don't know that I can make enough of a difference. And it wasn't uh, long after that that I got transferred from the station I was at to a new station, and I realised that there was every reason for me to stay because we were going to have to change this culture one officer at a time. And, of course, the Royal Commission sped that up. Today, 
it's a very different culture. Yes, Some indeed. really, really good indicators. Things like complaints. When I was a young junior police officer, no one complained about another officer. Well, today, in New South Wales, the vast majority of complaints that we receive, and not just we as in New South Wales Police, but the Ombudsman and the Police Integrity Commission, the vast majority of all of the complaints received in New South Wales come from officers because they won't tolerate what they see. Did you ever dob in a police mate? Yeah, I did. You did? I did. I could hardly deal with an issue if I wasn't going to walk the talk. Were you scared? Probably not scared. Not much scares me. I ultimately ended up being the Assistant Commissioner in charge of internal affairs. And again, even a lot of those complaints, most of those complaints that we deal with, be they at the top end of corruption or a a very low-level managerial issue, there's generally three things that have gone wrong. One of three things or maybe all. But by and large, it's because managers don't manage, supervisors weren't supervising, and here's the real kicker, leaders weren't leading. And so if you can get your leadership right and if you can stake your claim and if you can let people know what you stand for and what you won't fall for and you hold true to it, then these issues don't normally touch your life. Were you ever offered a bribe? Oh, yes, yeah. Absolutely. I, in fact, I was with a an honest, hard-working detective sergeant, workmate of mine. I was a young detective at Bankstown when I first came across this. And it wasn't a bribe in the sense of maybe a traditional bribe, but I can recall going to a house and we, we had to search the house. And on searching the backyard, I found a bag that was full of money. In confronting the owner, he was quite clear about it. He said, that's not my money. That's your money. It must be your money. It's not mine with the inference being that it's really a matter now of just take the money and leave me alone. And subsequently, we ended up charging that person. And that doesn't take long, and it didn't take long. If you were known as somebody that just wouldn't tolerate that, people didn't try their luck. And all it takes is one acceptance of something like that to taint you. Absolutely. A skeleton in your closet in this organisation will live with you forever. You cannot escape You're listening to the 2020 podcast from the Vision Radio Network as we rejoin the conversation with Police Commissioner Andrew Scipioni talking about the challenges that modern police officers are facing every day and the way his faith is important in the way he does his job. Can I ask you two kind of twin questions? The first one, what would you say were the two biggest issues facing our society from where you sit as head of Australia's biggest police force? If you were looking at today and then looking at tomorrow as being the two vision points, right now, right here in Australia, modern Australia, and it's not just Australia, but let's focus on New South Wales, alcohol-related crime is a major, major issue. The misuse and the abuse of alcohol is something that if we don't get a grip on it, it will grip us and it will take over. You look at the number of matters that we deal with as a police force. I run a big organisation of 20,000 people in our organisation. We're responsible for 800,000 square kilometres. That's New South Wales. Looking after 7.5 million people. When we look at what takes our time and our attention, when we're out operating on the streets, 70% of our time is consumed dealing with a crime that has alcohol as a factor. That is, we're dealing with a victim, a witness or an offender where alcohol is a factor in that crime. It causes significant troubles in the home with domestic violence. 
It causes enormous problems on our streets, in our suburbs, on the roads, deaths, drink driving, all of those things. If we don't get a grip on it, it will take us over. And of course, the other issue is potentially you lose a generation of young people. And if you lose a generation of young people, it's very difficult to come back to really fully recover. A good example of that, Lee, would probably be you and I as young people growing up. If you went into a hotel and there was a man in there or a person in there that was drunk, they'd almost be ridiculed as, well, that's the drunk up in the corner. He's so drunk he can't stand up. Well, today, that's almost the required behaviour. Go out and drink until you drop. Glorify it. Glorify it. Yeah. And then you get involved in this, and you've seen some of these stupid, stupid games. The king hit game, where people are drunk and they think that it's a sport almost. Started in New York, continues to go around the world to see who you can king hit, knock them out, and that's almost glorified because they capture it, stick it on the internet, and then you almost get brownie points. It is bizarre, but if we don't continue and we don't make sure that we're doing all we can, this could be a problem it would be uh, hard to recover from. Another big issue that faces our society. From well, again, if you were looking forwards, it would have to be how we prepare for and how we even today engage in cybercrime. Let me give you a forecast, and this is my professional forecast. It is exclusively mine. No one's in this space, but I believe that given 10 years, we will find that almost all crime will have a cyber component. If you look at it today, if you start thinking about it, I've already indicated New South Wales, 20,000 offices, 800,000 square kilometres. How big is the internet? How big is the internet? If we were having this discussion 10 years ago, we wouldn't even be talking about Facebook because Facebook didn't exist. Or YouTube or Twitter. And yet today, Facebook, if it was a nation, is the third biggest nation on the planet. Yes. All of those highways, byways, back streets, who's out there on patrol in those? No one. We're not. So who patrols the highways where crimes are being committed? And if you don't think Facebook is used in that regard, we've got some horrific examples of where young people were conned, tricked into turning up in a location not too far from here even in one particular matter where a young girl was lured to a death because she thought she was going to meet somebody from a wildlife preservation organisation and she met her murderer all because... Someone was able to represent themselves as somebody that they weren't. The photograph went up. She thought she was on a good thing in terms of this is what I want to do professionally. And this outrageous criminal had one thing in mind, that was to kill her. How do we patrol those areas? What do we do in the future when people go and attack your superannuation or they attack your banking details? How they can get in and infiltrate and change the way a nuclear reactor works because they can take control. We need to really start to think of this. I've talked and I continue to talk with the world's top 25 police commissioners and we do this every year. I've done this every year. This is something that's getting us all in terms of our minds and our hearts because we realise that we've got to pay it real attention. I'm glad you do. Can I ask you the second of my twin questions? What would be the two biggest lessons that you've learnt in this top job? Well, I guess it doesn't matter whether you're a policeman or a pastor. The fact is life is very fragile. Life as we know it is something that's like scotch mist. It can be here one second and gone the next. It doesn't take much to go from being alive, warm and vertical. So many things can go wrong, so we need to cherish it. We need to understand that it's precious. 
And there's no such thing as a dress rehearsal. I've certainly learnt that. And the other thing is, you know, when it all comes down to uh, the basic building blocks of life, the fact is we're all equal. No one's more important than anyone else. We all matter. A person is not just a name or a statistic. They actually count. The fact that we all count and that life is far too short and certainly far too uh, fragile to go and mess around with it, I think it changes one's perspective, and police officers and emergency service officers deal with these issues every day. My final question is this. What would your career and your life have been without your Christian faith, do you think? Well, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you today, let me tell you that. Look, I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. What I do know was there was a plan in my life, and I've just had to live it out. You know, my job was never to open doors. It was just to simply walk through the ones that God opened. And he opened the doors and, you know, obedience, I walked through. I don't think my life would be the life that I've got now. And it's not because of what I do. It's because of what's in me that makes me the man that I am. I'm so grateful as I think back on those tragic days that you talked about when I lost my dad. The fact that men, real men, in a church took me aside without me even knowing and invested into me taught me how to be a man and how to be a husband and ultimately how to be a father because i didn't have a father to do that i'm glad they took you aside and i'm glad they invested you and i a lot in you andrew scopiano it's a privilege to meet you and speak with you thank you so much indeed for joining us it's been a pleasure merry christmas Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.